I can start. All right, go for it, Sam. Okay, welcome, listeners, to episode 15 of Know Your Enemy. Um, this is nice, big, meaty episode for you that I think everyone's going to enjoy. Do you agree, Matt? I do agree. I was waiting for you to introduce me, Sam, but I'm, oh. I'm here too, listeners. <laughs> no, uh, let me do it. Let me do it again. Let me do it again. Let no, it again. it's funny. Okay. Uh, well, there's Matt, uh, my co-host, Matthew Sipman. I'm Sam Adler-Bell. This is Know Your Enemy. Um, I'm a professional podcaster, as you can tell. Um, <laughs> yeah. And uh, this episode is coming out um, just in time for your um, coronavirus quarantine listening pleasure. And it features our friend John Gans, who's an excellent writer and editor. He writes a lot about the right. And in particular, he's working now on a book project um, that's about... Uh, it's really about the year 1992 and how it sort of prefigured everything that we're experiencing with Trumpism and like right-wing populism now, but back then um, with figures like Pat Buchanan, David Duke, uh, Sam Francis, characters that we're going to get into in detail in the episode with John. Um, And that book is based on this article, which we talk about a lot in the episode, that he published in The Baffler a few years ago that's called The Year the Clock Broke. And John's also a columnist at The Outline, where I also write sometimes. And he also recently published a big piece in The New Republic called Searching for Neverland, which is sort of about, you know, the competing factions in the right between the never-Trumpers and the and the pro-Trumpers, and a really interesting meditation on how the conservative movement conceives of itself and, you know, how those myths are being proven wrong in the present. Right. Yeah. No, it was a great piece from John, and we talk about it uh, in the conversation, so I won't say too much more here other than to say that it really taps into one of the themes of this podcast, which is kind of the self-understanding of the conservative movement, the kind of mythologized version of their history that they tell themselves, and how that actually connects to reality. And uh, I thought that piece from John was really great, and it's especially pretty damning about the never-Trumpers, I must say. Yeah, um, it is. Now, as, as Sam alluded to, this conversation, it's kind of long, and it's a bit loose, meaning, to be honest, I'd never met John before, but we all gathered in Sam's living room, uh, had a couple drinks, and it was like, you know, when you meet someone and you're kind of friends instantly, and you start telling stories... We geeked out about this topic with John. <laughs> yeah. So I think that I think that accounts for it's not like an interview with him where we had a list of questions and wanted to like take the conversation in a very particular direction. It was more like we were all geeks about this stuff and had a good time talking about it. And yeah, I, there's the, the other thing I would add just to give some context for our listeners is that we make a lot of the distinction in this conversation about neocons versus paleoconservatives, neocons and paleocons. And that's something we had only very loosely touched on in the podcast so far. And basically, I mean, this will be fleshed out in the conversation, but paleoconservatives are the the strain of conservatism that uh, was very much rooted in a kind of, they root it in a particular kind of nation and culture and even race and ethnicity. Um, they tend to be a little more nostalgic about the Confederate South. Um, there's a lot of different elements to it. There's a more libertarian element to some of it, kind of resistance both to American uh, empire and our foreign policy, as well as resistance to the, the, the federal state. Um, mm-hmm. 
and so it's it's a mix sometimes of libertarians, as I mentioned, but also people like Pat Buchanan and Sam Francis. Um, and I would say this distinction really mattered a lot in the 80s, as we discuss, when conservatives came to power for the first time and some of the internal fissures of conservatism yeah. meant you had to pick someone from this faction or that faction for an important federal post. Uh, but then uh, paleoconservatism also really kind of gained um, gained a new life around the time of the Iraq War. And that was when the American Conservative was founded by uh, Pat Buchanan, among others, and it was really aimed at opposing the war in Iraq and being a vehicle for paleoconservatism. So that's the context for the conversation. We're really talking about paleoconservatism in this episode and the way it contrasts with other strains of conservatism. But since it was something we hadn't really introduced in the show much yet, I thought I would just make that note here. Yeah. And so th this conversation, a lot of it is um, really reflecting on this particular moment in time in the late 80s and early 90s when paleoconservatives like Pat Buchanan made this effort to retake control of the conservative movement that they felt had been lost to or taken over by the neocons during the Reagan administration yes. and then and then even more so completely in the Bush administration the first Bush administration. Right. Yes. And it's worth mentioning that you know not every neoconservative is Jewish but many are especially the generation of neoconservatives who you know were um writing and thinking in the 80s and 90s. Uh, and that we've talked about we, extensively on the podcast. And that we've talked about extensively in the podcast. So you can get a bit of, you know, you can't disentangle that entirely from the sense, the sense from a Pat Buchanan that the conservative movement and the Republican Party had in effect been taken over by interlopers, outsiders, <laughs> yeah. right? People who weren't yeah. really deep down a true conservative. But yeah, so we, we really go back to 1992. It's fascinating because I really, until John was writing about this, I knew David Duke had won, say, the Republican nomination for governor uh, in Louisiana in 1991 or whenever it was. But I... <laughs> I, I really, and I say this when we were talking with him, but I really was astonished to learn how explicitly someone like Pat Buchanan, when he was running for president in 1992, drafted off of David Duke, yeah, and said David Duke was onto something. Uh, yeah. So, so the kind the the relationship between white nationalism, the KKK, someone like David Duke, and mainstream Republican politics, it ended up being there was way more connective tissue there than I yeah. realized. I thought it was a fascinating conversation, and John was a great guest, and I was really glad he took the time to do it with us. Yeah, yeah. And and it's not just like ancient, it's not just like historical nerdery that we're doing here, because it, the, the really striking thing is how precisely these figures, some of the intellectuals who wrote about them, these forces that were really active in conservative politics at, in this moment, um, and that were sort of jostling for control over the conservative movement, how like all of these ideas and forces really reemerge in the person of Trump and his movement. Yeah. And and I I think, too, one of the really fascinating parts of John's work is that it's kind of this great alternative history of this period. Yeah. Because we tend to think of the late 80s and early 90s as being you know, the end of the Cold War, the triumph of liberal democracy, the end of history. And even if we acknowledge that that was a kind of hubris that met its nemesis later yeah. on in the Iraq War and the financial crash and kind of a, you know, things went up before they went down. 
um, it's also true that the stuff we're grappling with right now was present there too. And, and it kind of gets lost in, I think, the typical narrative of this period of time. Yeah. So l- let's do our uh, housekeeping, to use your uh, preferred phrase. I think it's worth mentioning that this episode, we recorded it a couple weeks ago, so not that long ago, but um, one reason it's been slightly delayed in coming out is that Sam and I have been working with Descent, the sponsor of this podcast, uh, and along with Lauren Stokes, Sam and I have guest edited the spring issue of Descent, and it's on the future of the right. And so, you know, it really was dealing with themes that we uh, talk about on the podcast. So the three of us, we helped Descent put together a special issue on that. And uh, listeners of the podcast, part of our discussion with Ross Douthat, a transcript of that will be in the issue. Also, Max Alvarez and Sarah Jones, along with uh, Danny Jenkins, were part of a conversation I led with ex-conservatives. Yeah. And kind of what we make of this moment. I thought it turned out really well, and there's some great pieces in the issue. But yeah. that's just a way of nodding to our sponsor, Descent, all our friends there, and that we've been working very closely with them over the last couple months on this issue. And, you know, there's only so many hours in the day. So I do think, you know, Sam and I, you know, I love Sam, but, you know, talking about Descent, the podcast, he's written stuff for me lately. We were just dealing with a lot. That's true. Yeah, that's right. And of course, if you're a uh, Patreon uh, subscriber at the $10 a month level, that means that you get a free digital subscription to Descent, which means that you can read all the pieces in this issue yeah. just by dint of supporting our podcast. But everyone who subscribes to the $5 level also uh, gets access to increasingly fast and furiously uh, coming out uh, extra, what do we call them? Bonus episodes. Bonus episodes. Yep. Yeah. Um, so we've been doing some punditry and, you know, with all this uh, time locked in our uh, respective apartments, maybe we'll do some really experimental uh, coronavirus uh, bonus episodes uh, where we're both losing our minds. And then <laughs> I wanted to say, um, because we were talking about this excellent piece that John uh, wrote most recently in, in The New Republic, our friends at the New Republic have a podcast that's called uh, "The Politics of Everything," and it's uh, co-hosted by Alex Perrine um, and Laura Marsh. I'm sure you guys have read a lot of Alex's writing. Laura's also a great writer and editor. She's edited some work of mine at the uh, mm-hmm. at the magazine, and uh, it's a cool podcast. So check it out. Yes, uh, please do check it out. Anything else, Sam, or should we go ahead and move into our conversation with John? Let's give them, give the people what they want. Alrighty, sounds good. So enjoy this. It's John Gans. Um, he's a writer and editor. He's working on a book about a lot of the themes that we're talking about in this episode, about 1992, about paleocons. Um, so look out for that and look out for his byline everywhere that he writes because he's great. But uh, welcome, John. Thanks for thanks thank for, you. So, I'm, I'm so happy to be here, and and you know, I almost said no because I was offended that you guys hadn't asked me earlier, and <laughs> I was planning on. Is this your Marshall Steinbaum bit? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was just like, you know, I fit very well into your program here, and it took you forever to have me on. Part of the problem is that we we like there are some people like you who it's like it's so obvious that you need to come on the podcast. It's too on the nose. It's too on the nose. 
Yeah. The best get it better late than never, but I almost turned it down. You did not. You did not. No, I was so excited. Are you kidding me? Well, John, you've written two essays in particular that we want to discuss. Yeah. One a couple years ago, 2018, for The Baffler, yeah. the year the clock broke, uh-huh. about the years 1991, 1992, right. kind of the uh, uh, David Duke, Pat Buchanan, yeah. Sam Francis, paleocon, neocon stuff. And then more recently, which I think kind of prompted uh, this much delayed invitation, right. was your essay in The New Republic called Finding Neverland which is about the kind of current crop of, you know, the people trying to put an intellectual veneer on Trumpism to some extent. And right. it's sort of a, a reflection on kind of ideas and how they relate to conservative politics. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and, and also like, you know, are these, especially the never Trumpers, the Bill Crystals, Charlie yeah. Sykes, Bulwark type people, Jonah yeah. Goldberg, Stephen Hayes, you know, does their never Trumpism actually make any sense? Is it coherent? And is it an actual honest grappling with their movement's own history? I thought it would be interesting just for the listeners to know, and we're going to introduce you, we're going to have introduced you already, but to know how you got interested in writing about the right in the first place. That is a good question. I accept Sam's interruption. You know, I've always been very involved. I'm not involved, but very interested in politics. um, And... I was a little, I don't know, apathetic or or just assumed after Obama won the election. You know, I grew up during the the Bush administration, which was which was nightmarish, and you know, just thought that that was going to be the future of America. That was when I was in college and high school, and then when Obama won, you know, I I sort of felt like you know I had been I'd been a little bit more of a leftist before that, and when Obama won, I was like, all right, liberalism seems to be working, and I believe sort of in this project, and let's see what this, let's see what this guy does, and, you know, it was an optimistic time, and, and, and you know. Yeah, it was. Yeah, and so, you know, for many years, I was, I was you know, interested in other things, and, and writing about art and culture, and, you know, after the election of 2016, which I think horrified and shocked many people, you know, I felt kind of like I had uh, abrogated some civic responsibility, and I, I had to do something to, you know, make a contribution or understand what, you know, what had uh, what had happened in the country. Following the footsteps of Hillary Clinton, right? It, this was my what happened, uh, and, and and you know, and, you know, I, uh, to, you know, full exposure. I know you and your listeners are are, are are quite left, but in that election, I was, I was. I was, you know, my sympathies have always been, you know, I was like sort of a, um, always liked the kind of Harringtonian Irving Howe leftism when I was in college. My sympathies have always been there, but I sort of, uh, you know, became this pragmatist and I was very pro Hillary and just was like, look, Trump is a real big problem. And, you know, we just have to buckle down and be reasonable and go with the safe bet because this would be really bad. I regret this in retrospect, of course. So then, yeah, after we'll get the, back to that. Yeah, at the after the election, well, that's that's made me, you know, I had to update a lot of views after the election. I was very disturbed by what happened, and I I wanted to, you know, I, you know, I had a, a writing background, and I wanted to, you know, make this contribution somehow. And I started writing about politics, and I there was an essay I always really liked um, Rick Perlstein's books, and there was an essay in the New York Times Magazine. Where he said, "Look, you know, I got it kind of wrong. The kind of weirder figures, the the more fringe 
figures that that I had thought had been sort of pushed out of the conservative movement were much more important than I thought, and like we need to write a history of those people. And I kind of took that as a as a as a call to action or or as an intellectual project. And I was like, okay, well then I'm going to start looking into those people. I think around that time I found uh, I was just you know searching around and I found an essay from from this uh, libertarian economist called Murray Rothbard, who I eventually wrote about, it called Right Wing Populism, which he wrote in 1992. And it was really eerie because he basically described Trumpism before it happened. And I was, you know, very excited to find this. He, and this was in, it was, he's reflecting on David Duke's failed Louisiana governorship run. And then he had this description of right wing populism. And I was like, Jesus Christ, this is Trump. Right. So Rothbard writes in 1992 in response to the emergence of David Duke and Pat Buchanan. um, He writes, and so the proper strategy for the right wing must be what we call right wing populism, exciting, dynamic, tough and confrontational, rousing and inspiring not only for the exploited masses, but the often shell shocked right wing intellectual cadre as well. And in this era where the intellectual and media elites are all establishment liberal conservatives, all in a deep sense, one variety or another of social democrat, all bitterly hostile to a genuine right. We need a dynamic, charismatic leader who has the ability to short-circuit the media elites and to reach and rouse the masses directly. We need a leadership that can reach the masses and cut through the crippling and distorting hermeneutical fog spread by the media elites. Sounds familiar. I was very excited to find this. I sent this to many people. I I didn't. I wasn't a, a writer at the. I mean, I was a writer, but I had no background writing for uh, about politics. So I just wanted to like spread the news. And I wrote. I sent a bunch of emails. Like I found this essay. I found this essay. Like this is it. Like this is the. This explains it. This is the keystone. And no one really responded to me. So I was like, I guess I have to write about it. So then I started. You know, it was shortly after Charlottesville that and there was lots of essays about the connections between libertarians and the alt-right. And I knew that, you know, Murray Rothbard was this prominent figure of the libertarian movement and had basically articulated this alt-right libertarian pipeline nexus uh, alliance before it's kind of got into the news. And I was like, okay, well, I, I know about this. So I wrote this essay and then I became very interested in writing about right-wing intellectuals. I read Corey Robbins books. I read Mark Lillis books, which I think other than I think his books on, Right-wing intellectuals are much better than his efforts as a political commentator. Like The Reckless Mind. Yeah, and The Shipwrecked Mind. I think those books are, are pretty good, actually. I mean, you know, I, I haven't read them in, in a while, but I would have to take another look at them. So, yeah, and so basically I became very uh, fascinated with these figures and started writing about them. And yeah. It, yeah, well, Rothbard ends up playing a really interesting role in the piece um, that you wrote about um, 1991, yeah. 1992. Yeah. Um, did you want to say something, Matt, before we get into that? I was going to ask how you lit upon the 1992 idea, but I think the Rothbard essay yeah. gets us part of the way there. But it's interesting, be- too, because um, if you look at someone like Pat Buchanan, I think in the popular imagination, the thumbnail sketch of Buchanan, you think, oh, he's kind of protectionist, right? right. He was against NAFTA. Yeah. Um, you wouldn't necessarily lump him in with a libertarian. You know, so what I'm getting at yeah. is you wouldn't necessarily at first blush at a superficial level connect uh, like a Ron Paul type libertarianism with uh, or, or Murray Rothbard type libertarianism right. with someone like Pat Buchanan. But it turns out they're all in the mix in this essay. And there was this weird kind of like, yeah, um, I, I don't. 
I don't know quite how best to put it, but maybe in terms of mapping the terrain of paleoconservatism. In terms of Murray Rothbard's, you know, kind of uh, promiscuous political alliances, he tried everything. I mean, he was such a fringe figure. He tried, He, you know, he had this very anti-statist philosophy that brought him into contact in the 60s with the new left. And then it brought him into contact in the 80s and 90s with the far right. You know, that's the nature of politics, and especially fringe politics. You, you have to make friends where you can. Was he an economist by training? He was. He, he studied under Ma- von Mises, or Mises, I don't know how oh, you say right. it. And von Mises, yeah. Yeah. He paid a lot of attention and was very involved in, in concrete politics as much as he could. He was sort of pushed out of the conservative movement in the 50s and 60s because he was a, he was an isolationist. And, um, you know, the new right uh, around... Uh, that was that was coalescing around national review was 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 hyper interventionist and hawkish in the context of the cold war in the context of the cold war exactly and he didn't fit that because he kind of continued this old right isolationism and felt like that was the that was you know the way to limit the american state and so he was sort of pushed out for that reason and also because he was quite eccentric in other ways. Um, so paleoconservatism, what, where's the best place to start with it? Well, I guess basically you have to bring it up in contrast to neoconservatism. So the neocons, you know, entered the conservative movement in the 60s and 70s, really. And they were the sort of refugees of the left, the old left and liberals who were turned off by the counterculture and the new left. And they brought with them a, a kind of belief about America that had been more widespread among liberals until that point, I think, that basically, you know, the country had a progressive movement towards greater freedom, inclusion. Um, its institutions were fundamentally, you know, good. And, and you know, World War II had been a worthy project and... And uh, the New Deal had things to be said for it, and and Abraham Lincoln was was you know a wonderful part of the American past. It was it's kind of Americana that you might be very familiar with, and and a kind of, and a kind of one that's that's not so that's not so toxic, and a lot of people have nostalgia for. And they were Jews, and they were their parents yes. were immigrants, yeah, they were so there was a, so there was a sympathy yes. for like many were Jews, most were Jews. A certain version of the American story appealed to them. The kind of like part of the Emma Lazarus thing. Yeah. But it was sort of, uh, okay, we've arrived, and now we can kick the ladder away for anybody else who's gotten here. Um, well, I would yeah. say, can I jump in one thing, yeah. too? I th- I can't remember if I've said this on the show before or not. I might have mentioned it once. But I always think one of the most interesting ways or interesting frameworks you can give to the conservative movement in these early, like the 50s and 60s, yeah. is what you thought about the Declaration of Independence. Yeah, that's really interesting. And, you know, guys like the the paleoconservatives, it was like, well, equality means like every people is equal. Right. So like the equality reference in the Declaration means like we were equal to Great Britain and therefore had a right to yeah, 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 govern yeah. ourselves. So it wasn't like, yeah, it, it, it's, re- it's like you can't separate. They tried to render the Declaration as being particular to like a certain people and culture, yes, yes. and and so the Universalist notes of the Declaration, yeah. which the neoconservatives, you know, following Lincoln, right, uh, glommed onto. That was, uh, I think, one of the interesting kind of fault lines in early conservatism, and I sort of feel like it blew open once the neocons kind of entered Absolutely. the conservative fold, and then you had 
the paleocon almost reaction to it like oh this movement we were all kind of jostling to be a part of it's it, it, something happened when the neoconservatives entered it and especially because i think the neoconservatives they had more money yes absolutely. they had uh they were because they came from the left or kind of mainstream liberalism they were more part of mainstream intellectual life. Yeah, they tend was, to have better credentials, better, you know, they had more institutional affiliations and academic connections. And, yes. um, and, also, and, also, and I feel like these people like, like a Mel Bradford or a, um, or, or a uh, Sam Francis or a Pat Buchanan view them as like interlopers. They weren't real conservatives. Yeah, they were Johnny come lately. I forget by who, where it's like, well, it's okay if the whore joins the congregation, but you don't have to like. That was Stephen Tonser yeah, at, yeah, yeah. at a at a Philadelphia Society meeting yes, in the eighties. Exactly. Yeah, right. Like, like it's fine if the if the town whore finds religion. It's even okay if she's the choir director. Right. But you don't want her giving the sermons. Sermons, right? And that's yes. how they. That was a reference. That was about neocons. Yeah. The the question of universalism is really key here. So basically, I think, you know, in the context of the Cold War, especially, um, the right, the American right, uh, adopted a kind of adopted in in its efforts to become more mainstream in in the way, and also just because of the influx of of neoconservatives, adopted a kind of universalism, which has had bad consequences, as we know, having lived through the Iraq War, about the American project, and. The paleocons, you know, ra- as they emerged, radically rejected it. And they basically say, the United States is not a creedal nation. It's not based on the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution or these ideas. It's a specific people, a national history. We have our own traditions. And all of the universalist projects are about thinning that out and de- literally and figuratively deracinating that into something that's no longer recognizable as American. So yeah, there there's a real tension in the conservative movement on an intellectual level about over this question really that comes down to universalism. It's easy to overplay the difference because when the conservative movement rode into Washington on Reagan's coattails, and actually some of them had been there beforehand because the new right sort of was getting going before Reagan, it was all one big happy movement. And and then in the... Right. They, so they gained power yeah. and suddenly you have to choose who you're going to staff an administration right, with. Right. And there was a scramble for jobs and the scramble for and alliances that were made. And basically the first big moment where, where these fault lines emerged was what we were talking about. Mel Bradford was going to be you know the head of the National Institute of the Humanities and, neocons- and he was a Southern partisan very anti-lincoln uh and the neoconservatives you know with this with this uh, the kind of americana of 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 lincoln and fdr and 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 american universalism that we were talking about you know reviled the, reviled him and, and wanted to wanted to make sure that he had no part of the reagan administration so like reagan's elected he starts appointing people uh, the plan was for Mel Bradford to run the National Endowment for the Humanities, yeah. and and basically the neocons flipped out, and they they pointed out he had supported George Wallace yes. in 1972. Yep. He had said these inflammatory things about Lincoln. Lincoln's meaning in American history was the key question, and it was just like whether or not are we pro Lincoln and think we Lincoln is part of the conservative tradition, or. Are we? We think Lincoln is some kind of disaster for the country. That was the big. That was a big. Question. And of course, uh, sorry, I was just to say, and you can't separate the question of Lincoln from this question of the Declaration. And then the more obvious thing, which is that I, 
this is sort of like alluded to when we sort of introduced the paleocons, but there's like a, bon- a bunch of like lost cause, like po- political nostalgia yes. and iconography, conf- Confederate uh, yeah. sympathies in this movement. And it's more rooted in the South. It's not like these, <laughs> certainly not these New York Jewish intellectuals. No. It's um, uh, much more that version of Americana, um, Southern Confederate, blah, blah, blah. It is rooted in the South, in, in Southern lore, even when the people are aren't not Southern. Necessar- aren't yeah. Southern. They're into <laughs> Confederate nostalgia. I was just going to say, and what happens is Mel Bradford's nomination gets yanked yeah. and, and instead is inserted uh, William Bennett. Right. You know, you might know him as both the author of uh, The Book of Virtues and yeah. uh, Gambling Addict. Wait, he's a gambling addict? Oh, yeah. Kind of makes me like him more. Like millions of dollars in gambling debt or something, Whoa. as he was like lecturing people on how to be virtuous. Uh, it's a classic story. But anyways, he uh, Bradford was yanked, in came William Bennett, and it was like an early uh, victory for the neocons in the tug of war. And, and I should yeah. say, I don't want to go on a tangent here, but I think the Bradford-Bennett contretemps, like that loomed so large in the paleocon imagination yes. yeah. and i was telling you beforehand one of my old teachers was george carey yeah a bit of a paleocon himself and i was his he was a professor at georgetown an expert on the federalist papers and american political thought yeah. and i was his ta for a couple years at georgetown and i would love going into his office to ask him about conservative lore and the number of times he brought up the the bradford bennett yeah, thing it was a real wound I mean, it, it, it just, again, it loomed in his imagination in a certain way. And, you know, I don't want to talk poorly of George. He's been dead for a few years. But, you know, speaking of, to give you listeners a bit of flavor, I remember one time, so to kind of raise me, uh, he would make me lecture for him on John C. Calhoun. Wow. Because oh he knew I fucking Jesus hated Christ. Calhoun, right? Yeah. It, but in, com- in this conversation with him, I remember somehow we got in this argument and I said, I said, but Professor Carey, the South started the Civil War, Fort Sumter and all that. And he said, that's what they want you to think. Yeah. Well, that, but that's a good way to, to, seg- to sort of segue into the beginning of your, your, your piece um, from, from The Baffler, yeah. which begins not with Pat Buchanan, but yeah. with David Duke. I am very ambi- ambivalent about... David sorry, Duke? About, no, <laughs> I have very clear feelings about David Duke. I'm very ambivalent about the historical importance that I have to assign him because he's such a narcissistic egomaniac. It, it feels too flattering to him. And Did you point out that he had a facelift in your piece? Yeah, yeah, literally. So, so he's, he's had, had several, several And probably some hair stuff. Though. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Fake. No, he, he he's was... He's kind of buff, too. Yeah. Oh, God. It's so gross. He's so disgusting. He's he's such he's such a disgusting person. I've read. I've had to read so many books about him, and, and he's so... Boring. Is that his real name, by the way? Yes, David it Duke? is. Okay, it just so, seems it seems too perfect in some sense. But yeah, go on. So David Duke. <laughs> David Duke, uh, you know, was a Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan, and he Nazified the Klan. I know this sounds really strange because we think about the Klan and Nazis as being identical, but this wasn't always the case. in In the post war, in post war Klan, there was a, you know, a lot of these guys had been World War II veterans, and and while they, you know. Were, were horrible racists and, and often anti-Semites. And the Nazis were sort of a bridge too far. And he, because many of them had fought against them and they were, and they were, you know, American, they felt patriotic about America. He, he, he fused, he was really one of the people who fused the, the neo-Nazi movement and the Ku Klux Klan. 
He was the he was the unity candidate. He was the unity candidate sense. for those movements, and now they're basically indistinguishable. Um, he turned to respectable politics after you know several. He decided, I guess, the Klan was a dead end, and he ran for office in in Metairie, uh, Louisiana, and he won as a state representative for Louisiana. That was in 1989, and he kind of used that to launch a, a, a you know an escalating political career where he tried to run for for greater and greater office. He ran for Senate, and it failed. But you know there was lots of weird things like he he won a majority of the white vote, and you know people started to pay attention. And that was in 1990, and then in 1991 he ran for governor of Louisiana and shocked everybody when he won they have a very strange runoff system in louisiana where it's an open primary system so every candidate can run and the you know the two the two leading people usually go to a runoff unless there's an outright majority he beat the mainstream republican a guy named buddy romer who who actually was a democrat but switched to the republican party and he eventually lost on a landslide but but Again, I think, unless I'm I'm getting everything screwed up, I think he won a majority of white voters in the South. I mean, in Louisiana. So he lost this election, you know, in a landslide. But he terrified the Republican Party. They didn't exactly know how to respond to him, how much to distance themselves from him, because he spoke the language of Reaganism. The thing about David Duke, which is, which is really disturbing when you go back and look at the campaign, is that the way he spoke for most of the campaign was much more moderate and much more in the in the vein of normal american political discourse that we grew accustomed to than the way that trump speaks he he trump says things that david duke would not have dared to say and in turn about race and and so on and so forth he, he would he i mean david duke ran disgusting political advertisements but when he was pressed on things and debates and speeches he would make concessions to sort of the the lip service to American inclusiveness that Trump that Trump doesn't. So it be it was this situation where the Republican Party was hearing David Duke talking about um, you know welfare dependency and affirmative action quotas and reverse reverse discriminations the welfare underclass and he and they were looking this this you know racist populist is is stealing all of our lines what distinguishes us from him right and do we have a are we are, do we are we in danger on our right flank, and I, yes. I have to say, one of the things in your piece that I, the the Baffler piece on 1992 that I really learned and that I did not know, I really was surprised to read. I shouldn't say surprised, but I didn't realize how explicitly Pat Buchanan was like, "We're going to run on the David Duke platform." Yeah. Well, well, he was incredibly uh, because I asked about that. Yeah, yeah, and and then later, of course, he says David Duke was stealing from him. Yes. He was going to go down to Louisiana and sue him for copyright infringement or whatever. Yeah. But I thought that was actually extremely interesting and yes. connected some dots because yeah. I'm not a, like a Pat Buchanan fan, of course, but I don't. But he was yeah. like like among sort of pundits, he, like he's not a dumb guy. No, he's not a dumb guy. He pretty damn mainstream he was on mclaughlin group group right and like was he on crossfire and he had a a, a nationally syndicated columnist so he was on tv he had this column 
he had worked for Nixon. Did he work in the Reagan administration? Yeah, both Reagan and Nixon administrations. So, like, this guy was pretty embedded in the institutional Republican Party and, yes, and, and, and burgeoning conservative movement. He was quite close with uh, with Buckley. Yes. And so I always – that really – again, it's surprise isn't quite the right word, but I did not know he that explicitly – kind of drafted off of David Duke. The thing about Pappy Cannon is, yeah, he was in the center of the conservative movement and probably America's most prominent conservative after Buckley in the 80s and, and, nine, and early 90s. He was always quite right wing. Um, he was sort of the rightmost member in a way of the Nixon administration. He was there to kind of be their attache to the conservative movement you know, and the counterpart was Moynihan, who was that to the liberals. So Buchanan was always was a hardliner, and you know his impact on American politics is profound. Buchanan basically grew up in a, a kind of Catholic Francoist milieu. Those politics have always sort of come with him, even when he moved into the main or the so-called mainstream of conservatives. He did a lot of strange things when he was in the Reagan administration, urging. Reagan to make weird gestures like putting a wreath on the on the grave of SS off uh, killed Waffen SS soldiers, which caused extreme consternation among Jewish neoconservatives and the Jewish community in general. And he was quoted, I think, in a newspaper. There's no reason to doubt the source that he said, oh, this is to show that Reagan is not being controlled by Jews. So he look, there's a lot of politics, but I think it's safe to say from what he has been written seeking power and not seeking power that Pepe Cannon is 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 pretty anti-semitic well yeah and, yeah. and Bill Buckley came to that conclusion yes and he came to that conclusion after like hemming and hawing yeah and forever and, and ever yeah. and it's yeah. I feel like is the Catholic in the room yeah. I, I should say that like there's an ugly strain of anti-semitism that yeah. s- that certain currents of Catholicism uh, now more sidelined but for a long time at the center coming of Catholicism back. it's coming, coming back, back <laughs> But it's it's yes. also true that I was thinking yeah. about this last night, kind of preparing for this episode. Like one of the weird things about Buchanan is, uh, well, it's not weird, but he's an isolationist of sorts, yes. right? So, okay, uh, I buy the case that maybe the U.S. entry into World War One had this ripple effect that, like, maybe if we hadn't gotten in World War One, right. it wouldn't have turned out worse. But what you can't do, and but Buchanan tries to do in one of his recent books. Yes. Right is say that actually we shouldn't have entered World War II either. Yes, and well, and I just yeah. feel like the stumbling block of that is there's no way you can talk about World War II and our uh, entry into it that basically to make the case that we shouldn't have entered World War II, you have to end up making an argument about Hitler, yeah. Nazism, and the Holocaust yeah. that just doesn't add up. There's two points here, which is okay. Another another lineage of of paleoconservatism is to the old right, the isolationist old right before the war. Charles Lindbergh. Charles Lindbergh and Taft and, and figures like this. The two the two things that are most disturbing about them to just, you know, kind of red-blooded American feelings about what's right and wrong, you know, your good old Frank Caprism, is that their attitudes towards first the Confederacy and then second they're they're kind of either friendly or indifferent attitude towards Hitler and and the rise of fascism in Europe. So the paleoconservatives self-consciously identify with both the the Confederate tradition in American politics and the isolationist 
tradition in American politics, which which are not exactly, which is a sort of a strange hybrid in a way because there were very hawkish racist confederates and you know we yeah but with imperial designs exactly exactly so it's not to say it's not to say like oh all the bad people have always been on the same side but they've managed to 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 fuse these two horrible traditions (laughs) in american (laughs) political life Mm -hmm. and and this is why they become the entry point for the real extreme right into the mainstream of american politics is that they are basically the nexus in which these views take on veneers of respectability, intellectual respectability. It's just like, oh, of course you can't be a Holocaust denier. You'll get laughed out of, yeah, you know, public life. But if you make an argument, maybe the U.S. shouldn't join World War II. Maybe, <laughs> maybe the just to talk about a recent book. Maybe the Civil Rights Act was not such a great idea. Who knows? It's just like... Chris Caldwell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... Let me... Can I read something from your piece that I think that illustrates this? You you say... This is from your Baffler piece. The imagination... Their imagination... This is the Paleocons. Um resembles nothing so much as the rainy day transports of a boy who lines up all his toy soldiers from different periods in a grand alliance. Here's a knight. There's a cowboy. Here's Davy Crockett. There's a special forces commando. And for all its eclectic yet selective evocations of white civilizational virtue, the movement, sentimentalism, and romance was also steeped in Spanglerian gloom. The writing of this cohort of paleo thinkers is shot through with a deep cynicism, even nihilism, and a hard-hearted notion of power that questions democracy itself. Yeah. I think that, you know, that that just came from reading a ton of their magazines. I was reading, you know, Chronicles, which was originally Chronicles of Culture, which was one of the big paleo-conservative magazines of modern age, which is slightly more elevated. Um, and it has to do with this issue of what we we're talking about, concreteness versus universalism, is that they want to capture something concrete about the about American ex- American national nationality and nationhood experience. But this leads weirdly enough, or not weirdly enough, maybe naturally enough, into this whole welter of different imaginative projections onto the American past. Yeah. So they basically have to create these fantasies of like, this is the American essence, right? Because they, they're they like, well, we don't, we can't base it in words, yeah. right? It's we not can't a creed. base it in a creed. So we have to base it into this excavation, which turns into a fantasy of what it means to be American. And you get several different versions of this. But um, basically, it becomes a group of people with affinity with similar fantasies about or, or similar imaginative world about what it means to be American and what it what the essence of America is and what is a alien attack on that. And you can see very clearly how anti-Semitism can fit in there. Yeah, yeah. I I had one quick comment, which is that the fantasy element. As I, as an ex-conservative, yeah, I, that's so true, right? And and it's be and it's, I guess, partly what makes it true for me, or what, what makes it ring true to life, is that it's so interesting when you talk to some of these people, that, like, so when they imagine the South, right, they always like own the plantation, yeah, right. They're never the slave, no, or they're never the white trash, right? You, you know, doing subsistence farming or yeah. something. There's and I remember, yeah. And I remember one time, this is a great example of the fantasy. I lived in Virginia for five years. So this was the first time I met like old money Southern types, 
which actually was quite radicalizing for me. Yeah. But I remember having a hungover breakfast with a friend one day, and he said we were, you know, having one of these, we were in our like mid to late 20s, like kind of in some existentialist conversation. And he said, Matt, you know, the thing is, I just never knew what to do with my life once I realized I wouldn't die in Pickett's charge. <laughs> well, that's, that's, isn't there a Faulkner line about that? Like, I, I'm sure, yeah. given, I don't want to name this friend, but uh, yeah. that was, he was a, a very much a Faulkner reader. Right, so there's there's gloom and glory. There's gloom yeah, and glory. gloom exactly. and glory. That's well, a, that's, that, yeah. that's, there's, there's yeah. a whole Francis, there's a whole Francis essay about, about the American South where, uh, well, we'll get to San Francis, I guess, soon. So he, <laughs> he talks about how the American South is more, of like a European nation in that it has this history of defeat and suffering and, and feudalism feudalism. Yeah. And, and that this gives it a substance, a, tr- a, a substance that the North or the rest of the country doesn't have. So, so the, the ser- there's a search for substance and the substance is found in fantasy. And it's the, there's the, the, these fantasies of glory, power overshadowed by defeat and gloom Feelings of resentment about that, feelings of, you know, wanting to take revenge or, or to, to overthrow things. They go back and forth between being despairing and megalomaniacal. It's kind of fat. I mean, like, that's kind of fascist, like that kind of going back and forth between like gloominess and being like, ah, oh, we're going to take over. Or, or, yeah, or like a feeling of lack and having and having lost something that yeah. needs to be re, to re, exactly. reclaimed through violence. And Some theory, Griffin or someone's like palagenetic ultranationalism. It's like about rebirth. Yes. Or, or, as, or as, as Ross Douthat put it in our recent conversation with him, reactionary futurism. Reactionary yeah. future. There's a yeah. guy who talked about reactionary modernism. There's a book yeah. about that. Yeah. So I want to yeah. just, because we're our listeners are going to be like, hopefully like like all with us right here in the intellectual clouds of this conversation but i think it'll be helpful to root it back yeah. in 1992 for sure how do we get we're talking about the paleoconservatives yeah um we have um david duke losing his uh run for the governor but like showing this sort of synthesis between like you know his kind of like racist uh confederate nostalgic yeah. blah 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 with the mainstream reaganite um, ideas about welfare and the underclass yeah. and blah, blah, blah. And then you have Pat Buchanan, um, who is this figure who has lasted through these different conservative yeah. administrations, um, who was sort of the right wing of um, the sort of mainstream conservatism, who is like one of the most public figures in American conservatism. And where what is he doing at this moment? And that can get us to well, some of these other Well, he's on McLaughlin. He's, he's, you know, he's doing, he's got a, he's a syndicated college. He's very prominent. I guess, how does he end up running for president? That's a really interesting question. So, so in 1988, Pat Robertson tried to primary Bush and, and France, I mean, and, uh, and Buchanan was thinking of doing it, but didn't. So Buchanan was basically in the, in the parlance of our time, kind of red pilled. I mean, he was already, he was already sort of had these sympathies, but he started hanging out with a group of, of real, you know, hardcore reactionary thinkers around the time of the Gulf War, because he, he, he kind of took a, an isolationist line about the Gulf War. And he, he started to obsess over the neoconservative takeover of the conservative movement and 
concretely two things. I mean, look, the famous story that the the right tells itself about the 1992 primary and and Bush's losses is the, is the no new taxes pledge, right? So right. Bush said in a speech, no new taxes. He ended up raising taxes in this, you know, the famously the Reagan administration was all about taxes, tax the tax revolt, and you know that was the big thing of the conservative constituency. So the no new taxes pledge was was the was the big thing but in point of fact the the thing that really made reagan's right bolt and 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 cemented the decision for buchanan to try to primary him which which came rather late actually it was it was at the very end of the year of 1991 so to primary you know, george bush to, to primary george bush exactly was bush's passage of something called the civil rights act of 1991 yeah Civil Rights Act of 1991 is so obscure at this point, it's crazy that it, it it had such a pivotal role in American politics. Basically, because conservative uh, justices in the judiciary struck down a number of rulings in favor of minorities who had and women who had sued corporations in the 80s, Democrats wanted to strengthen the ability of them to get redress in the courts. They drafted this legislation. They almost passed it over a presidential veto in 1990. It was very frightening to uh, and and exercising to the the hard right. Finally, because of David Duke, because David Duke had crowed over killing the Civil Rights Act of 1990, uh, he had been in the audience of the Senate and used it as a as a as a grandstanding opportunity. He went outside and said, I killed the I killed bill. it. Yes, exactly. Um, because of David Duke's run in Louisiana, he, the Bush administration basically decided, look, we need to do something right now to distance ourselves from David Duke. So they were like, okay, let's do a compromise civil rights act of 1991. This looks very good. We look nice. And they had, there were plans beforehand for this, but, but another part of this was Clarence Thomas putting Clarence Thomas on the court, they felt like, all right, there's a possibility with the Civil Rights Act of 1991 and Clarence Thomas, we can finally, they've tried this many times, finally begin to peel away black men, black middle-class voters from from the Democratic coalition. Yeah. And so, they were, so there, was, there was a political calculus here, which which was, doesn't seem stupid. It's just misguided, maybe. And they passed this act, and at the moment this passed... The the uh, the 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 Republican hard right, the conservative movement lost it. They the the there's just streams of editorial screaming while you murder. They thought that basically the Civil Rights Act of 1991 would mean that there was no, there would be quotas. That yeah, white people would be excluded from jobs in order to avoid um, lawsuits. Yeah, this has not happened. In fact, even. Uh, Employment attorneys don't know what the Civil Rights Act of night is. Totally <laughs> historically inconsequential in retrospect. Yeah, and I mean, in, in the I mean, look if you ask fucking uh, I'm sorry if you ask Chris Caldwell or m- even Michael Brendan Doherty, who's more obsessed about gender and yeah. sexuality than race, but but they might say that they might say that these things are very important. But 
But, but for it plays the most, this important political role in it this, plays, sh- this, in this, this moment, very like kind yeah. of concentrated ice, like compressed period of time where there's this ping ponging back and forth, right? Yeah. Where you have you have David Duke yes. running, yes, exactly to the right. Then then they they are, try to pe- they try to try to 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 do something to to tack left a little bit, yeah, and then that makes their right bolt. Yeah, it was the Civil Rights Act of 1991 that made Buchanan decide to run. To, to to try to primary Bush. He they announced to the Washington Times, you know, you know, the big at the time, I guess it was the Washington Examiner is today. It was the big outlet of the right um in Washington. I mean there were there are other ones, but it was sort of rising in importance at that time. Oh that Mooney money. <laughs> oh that Mooney money, that's right. Um how fucking weird is that? Yeah. Uh, just yeah. like we don't have to. I don't mean to derail us, that but it's so just strange. like, is it just weird that this religious cult leader owned a newspaper that was like the main organ of the right in DC yeah. in a certain period of time? Well, who knows who runs the Federalist now? Similar question. We should all change our Twitter display names to who funds who, the who Federalist. Who the Federalist? I can't because I'm off Twitter. Yeah, I don't like to get involved in those meme things. Um, yeah, no, you don't, John. So, yeah. <laughs> so you have, um, so you have, uh, he's, he, so he decides to run. Pat Buchanan is deci- deciding to run. I, I think you, you mentioned that he was red pilled by some other, um, well, people he was already consort. pretty yeah. red pilled himself, but yeah, he was sort of, okay. He started, I think in your, in your piece, you describe yes. these meetings, yes. uh, at a Chinese restaurant, McLean, Virginia, yes. between Joe the, the Sobrin and Sam Francis and Pat Buchanan. And this is an yeah. amazing moment in your piece. And I think even maybe before we get to yeah. what Pat Buchanan's campaign is like, what is this, what is this tri- in- intellectual triumvirate that we're described, that, that is, is coming together here? Yeah. So who, who was at these meetings? Okay. Buchanan, Francis, and... Buchanan, Francis, and a guy named Joe Sobron. Oh, 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 yeah, yeah. yeah, so... Oh, we should introduce. We should introduce these guys. Yeah. If we're not going to do it in this episode, when are we going to do it? Yeah, Joe fucking sober man. What a piece of shit. He is really one of the grosser people that you encounter. In but but as all the conservatives say, he could really write. Well, they also have this whole story about him that he went nuts. That's it. There's two 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 refrains conservatives always had. He can really write, and he went nuts. <laughs> they always say he went nuts. So I was like, eh, I think that actually he stayed the same, and people kind of. Realize that it was fucked up. But well, like one of the things you say about Sobrin, sorry to interrupt, but yeah. like uh, you point out that he used w- one of his columns to kind of signal oh, boost this bizarre kind of white, white supremacist, nationalist white nationalist newspaper. newspaper. Column in it was a syndicated column. It was everywhere. Yeah, I'm just sort of trying to imagine. Well, he was a senior editor at the National Review and, and quite close to Buckley. Yeah, yeah, because he, he was a Catholic, one of the a very Catholic, and it's just imag- like I just love imagining having a syndicated column, and you're like, well, what am I going to write about this week? Eh, what the hell? I'm going to signal boost. It had a it bizarre name, right? Inspiration. It's as if. It's, it's as if. Yeah, inspiration. I'm going to talk about this weird white nationalist. It's as if. I mean, he's. Who's the hardest right person who writes in a major newspaper column right now? I, I but it's he was fairly respectable. I mean, he was super hard right, but I don't know. It was like as if David Brooks, that's a bad example. Ross Duthat had written an article being like, "Hey, have you ever read this thing, The Daily Stormer?" Yeah. It, I don't like it. It's not for me, but it's or, kind of interesting. Or what was uh, yeah. Richard Spencer Radix like? Journal. Like, yeah, you, like, like yeah, yeah. There's some interesting stuff. Here's what here's what Sobern wrote in this 1986. This is a syndicated column. It's yeah. going all over the country. He he says, um, 
uh, the, the writing was, quote, often brilliant, covering a beat <laughs> nobody else would touch. It's also not true. And, trash. and doing so with intelligence, wine-raging observation, and bitter wit. It is openly hostile to blacks, Jews, and Mexicans, and Oriental immigrants. <laughs> he's basically just saying, like, hey, check this out. Yeah. And then he, he, he backs off, and he's like, well, you know, it's really not for me, but yeah, <laughs> but, but I do enjoy it sometimes. Have you ever... So it's, this, just, it's basically hustling... Yeah, log rolling yeah. on behalf of the yeah, yeah, far yeah. right. But so you, this is one of the guys who's sitting in this Chinese restaurant yes. with Pat Buchanan. Yep. Um, the other is Sam Francis. Right. In my opinion, is the most important right-wing intellectual of the past, I don't know, 50 years. He... I agree, by the way. Yeah. His vision of the right and American society is basically in many ways come true, So, it, which is not good. Sam Francis... You know, went to University of, of of North Carolina Chapel Hill. He he hung out in a coterie of other kind of Southern reactionary uh, intellectuals. He went to Washington and worked at the Heritage Foundation, which was, I think was fairly recently founded at that point. Prior to Reagan's, he was part of the New Right before Reagan. He helped draft anti-terrorism policy. He was he was a, he was a and you know, anti-terrorism policy at that point was in the context of the Cold War and and left-wing terrorism. He did he did a PhD, right? He did a PhD on on early modern English history on the Earl yeah. of Clarendon, who was a cor- uh, courtier in the in the court of Charles II and a, and a diplomat. Um, so he sort of fancied himself this like European historian who was a grand strategist himself. I think so. I I mean, I've I've always wanted to kind of uh, um, excavate what that. What his thesis meant for him, I think he viewed himself as kind of a an adjunct to power and a and a and an eminence grease. By the way, have you ever read Michael Brennan Doherty's essay? On it's Francis? a very good essay from in like, many ways. like the like the uh, mid aughts, yeah, right? The or, Castaway. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's a, a good, good essay, essay in many, many ways, ways, but I mean, Michael Brennan Doherty, who I, I don't think is a bad guy, I, I think that he does not he soft pedals a little he, he again it's the conservative narrative of he went nuts and he, he doesn't really he's sort of soft pedals sam francis's you know really crazy views from very early on so sam francis uh gets a job working for john east who is a senator from north carolina right uh, jesse helms is uh junior senator um a real, also himself a conservative intellectual, and uh, I don't know if he was Catholic, but he wrote about about Saint Augustine. Um, he did his anti-terrorism policy. He famously wrote for for Jesse Helms this horrible speech attack on. This was around the debate about Martin Luther King uh, Jr. holiday, and this horrible debate, a uh, horrible attack on MLK that. Daniel Patrick Moynihan apparently uh, tore up in the well of the Senate and jumped on. Johnny killed himself eventually. I mean, it's a, it's a sad story. He was he was wheelchair bound. He he had uh, he had thyroid issues. Uh, he killed himself. Uh, Francis ended up at the Washington Times. He was a he was a very strong writer. Um, he became a, a very uh, vocal columnist there. With a with a vision of conservatism that was sort of a little different from 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 the the Reagan consensus that that kind of grew up, he was always a right wing populist. He 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 wrote an essay right when Reagan came to power, where called the message from Mars, where he took the book 
um, by this guy, the sociologist named Don Warren, who identified yeah, in this the is 1970s really important. a group, a constituency called Middle American ra- uh, Radicals, MARS. These are kind of Reagan Democrats and Nixon Nixon voters, ethnic whites, often lower middle class and working class, who had sort of welfareist views on state intervention, but also were you know highly resentful of programs for the extremely poor and for minorities and post busing. I'm here working my ass off. Why yeah, should we exactly. give handouts to right? Yeah, that, that, that attitude, which we're we're all very familiar with. But he he identified them as the core of their Republican, the emerging GOP majority. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. And he said, you know, you know, what's interesting is that. He, when he first wrote his essay about him, he realized that they were often, you know, Catholic, you know, Irish, Italian, and even Jewish. And then later he sort of, it sort of becomes more explicitly white nationalist, just white. So he identified this group and he said, look, Reagan is the candidate of these people. They want to reshape American politics around their interests. They're the, they're the class. So he basically had almost Marxist interpretation of Reagan. He was like, Reagan is the tribune of, sorry. No, I was just going to say he was a, a, a big fan of James Burnham. Burnham, who had, had, had have you guys That's talked about Burnham? We, yeah. We've only, we've touched upon Burnham, but yeah. I was going to say, as oh, you, as you all keep these talking, guys are Burnhamites. Yeah, but as you keep talking, uh, uh, fold in Burnham to sure. uh, uh, Francis's Francis. story and what kind of Francis learned from Burnham, because it is, you know, as we put it on the show before, um, and as you put it in your essay for Burnham, like history was a history of just like uh, domination by different elites. So yeah. you never really changed anything. You were just kind of shuffling you know, shuffling around who the elites might be. Right. And, and, and so if you're viewing history in, the, in those kind of yeah. amoral terms, the way we put it on the show before is that like for, for Burnham, it, or the way you could kind of interpret Burnham is if that is how history has played out, then it's kind of like, well, you know, uh, history is a series of clashes of interests right. and like white people of interests, black people of interests, you know, like, like, like some group of elites is going to like draw on the support of, you know, different demographics and like, well, what's wrong with white people Right, kind of having their elites looking out for them. Right, 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 right. right. So Marxism without the eschatology, there's no yeah, like, yeah. there's, there's no, no like great historical agent and there's there's no Hegelian synthesis. It's no. just, it, um, it goes on forever. Power, power forever yeah. and ever. Well, you know, that's not maybe not, you know, as I've read more of him, it's maybe not entirely fair to him. I mean, he, he has some interesting passage in some of his books where he says things like, Actually, the public interest kind of emerges in this dialectical way from the <laughs> from the the fighting of these different groups, which I think is kind of right. Yeah, but well, let's hope. Yeah, but it's true. There is a grim aspect of it where he's like, "Yeah, you know, basically there are elites. They have this manipulative relationship to the masses, and they sort of use them and ride them into power and you know control them until another group of elites activates another." You know, yeah, it's basically just like you know tribes, kind of uh, you know nomadic tribes, sort of knocking each other in and out of power, yeah. sort of view of history. And Sam Francis ascribed to this. Yeah, and basically he they, he interpreted mid-century liberalism and the rise of corporations 
and managerial capitalism as this rise of a certain class that was you know technicians and and managers who who were the real people in power not capital right you know? so he was very influenced by this idea and this was a, a huge background for 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 sam francis's thinking um so yeah basically he was like okay reagan is the tribune of of middle americans and of middle american radicals and you know as the 80s went on and the reagan administration did not accomplish the uh, role that he viewed it and for many conservatives it was disappointing in a number of ways i mean abortion stayed legal there was no prayer in school in force like a lot of the the, the deepest hopes of the most hard right were not you know basically america remained america and it, it wasn't you know, it wasn't a regression to the to the nineteenth century or whatever fantasy they had. <laughs> they did not, as Murray Rothbart suggested, repeal the twentieth century. Not repeal the twentieth century, which was a big big grievance. So, so Francis and the people around him, you know, felt very disillusioned with Reagan by the end of it. Who they felt like had been kind of sucked into the liberal blob and convinced of all these sort of pieties about american you know political life and being nice to these people and don't be too racist and so on and so forth and he felt that there was a big failure and he he had been kind of hawkish in certain ways uh in the cold war everybody was hawkish um well well except for rothbard but he also another interesting thing which i which i touched on in the article is that he was obsessed with i mean it was a per particular policy interest of his with with South Africa and and the in and apartheid and yeah. which was a huge thing on the right it was it was, it was yeah not to refer to my conservative past again but i was an intern at the heritage foundation in, <laughs> uh, the summer of 2004 and the man i worked for uh, lee edwards kind of this you know kind of one of the in-house sure, histori- yeah. one of the in-house historians of the right I remember he's constantly revising the story. Uh, yeah. Well, he's written an interesting essay in this context about about American populism. Yeah. But, yeah. Oh. It's really kind of shocking to read that. But that's such a crazy revision. But but I do remember, like even then, even as a young conservative, someone who had drunk the Kool Aid. Yeah. I remember Dr. Edwards. You know, we would get lunch regularly. I, I we went on a trip together to do archival research at the Hoover Institution out at Stanford. Like I spent a lot of time with him, and I remember at one point him telling me about this junket he went on to S- South Africa, and like there was a part of me that it was just like weird to me because I didn't. It was one of those things I was, you know, mainstream enough to think like, well, wasn't it good that South Africa wasn't apartheid anymore? Yeah. And but yet, yeah. you know, in the early '80s, like Reagan came into power, and yeah, there was a real connection between the American right and the forces that wanted to uphold apartheid in South Africa, which was laundered through the Cold War. Which was laundered through the Cold yeah. War, yes. And and it's just, but it's it's a fact that like yeah. these right wing figures would go on these junkets to South Africa and be like, whoa, yeah. you know, they come. I mean, sort of like the junkets to Israel now, where you show them the kind of best versions of an apartheid society and say like well see if we le- if we unleash these forces it's over you know, it's, it's over, it's over. Yeah. and so for the sake of civilization for the sake of your ally in a certain region in the sake for the sake of some you know balance of power in a broader struggle in with south africa it might have been the cold war it with israel it's like you know strategic interest against, in the region yeah in yeah. the middle east uh but it it's that that was just one of those things where it's like now like 
who thinks about South Africa that much, who well, whatever. it's coming back actually it's, it's in right wing discourse. But, yeah, but it's it's just like you really realize at the time all these right wing intellectuals were being sent over to South yeah. Africa to be given this yeah. you know, very yeah. superficial tour of the place. And that was just one of those things where, you know, when I look back and I think about my own trajectory, it's like you start adding these things up and it's like yeah yeah why was why was this guy who i interned for like going to south africa two sentences later and you're like wait did you say apartheid (laughs) so sam francis was preoccupied with apartheid he was it was it was very pro south africa it was called it was a term called like the frontline nations yeah which was about the angola uh rhodesia um, South, Africa. South Africa, who are fighting, you know, various levels of insurgency that yeah. were backed by the Soviet Union and Cuba. Yeah. So he was very of uncritical support for 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 those regimes. You know, the the story that I turned up, which I was like one of the things I was like most amazed and proud of in my research, was you know this church group went to visit him. To try to lobby uh, John East, the senator he worked for, you know, to to oppose apartheid, and he launched into them. He started verbally this nice church group. He started verbally abusing him. He cursed at them. He said, "If it, I would stomp you people into the earth," yeah. and you know, he, his boss reprimanded him, but he stayed on. But and this is my criticism of the Michael Brendan Doherty piece about Francis. It's like these things were there. I mean, and and, and were were easy, not that difficult. He wasn't just a great diagnostician; he was no, also he, sick. He, he was he was a reactionary from a, from from the beginning, yeah. uh, highly reactionary from the beginning. And you know, you, you didn't have a lot. Okay, this is a big theme in in American politics. It's just like you didn't have to say the racism loud because it was the it was fine to be implicit because everybody was. Yeah, you know, like it didn't. You know, like, everyone knew what you meant, and you didn't have to hit it over the... Yeah, I mean, Ronald Reagan fucking started his campaign in 1980 in uh, that town in uh, Mississippi where civil rights workers had been killed. Right, exactly, and and talking about states' rights. I I do want to say, too, one of the interesting things in Michael Brennan Doherty's essay on uh, Francis is the claim... This is one of the things that really pisses me off about Catholics. They always claim people convert on their deathbed. (laughs) <laughs> oh yeah that is a thing this is a constant thing but one of the really interesting little right-wing connections is that when francis i, I mean you mentioned your piece he smoked a, a pack uh smoked a pack of palm oils a day yeah, we gotta smoke soon yeah, on his deathbed it was antonin scalia's son who's a catholic priest who went to visit him hmm. i didn't know that yes that's at the very end of darty's oh, piece I and i have to that. say i i thought of this too because when i was again a, a young right-winger in dc I went to at least two dinner parties with Father Scalia, mm-hmm. who, who, yeah, and I, and it's interesting to me because he was. I later learned he was like a chaplain or a Catholic priest, very involved with Courage, the very anti-gay, uh, Catholic sort of the twelve-step program for Catholic yeah, yeah, gays, yeah. and and uh, he was he was kind of like this charming figure. I was not Catholic yet myself, so he yeah. was kind of like urging me to convert yeah. uh but i that know. that little detail like what are the odds like if you're just if you so listeners sometimes one of the things i wish i could convey to listeners is that the right-wing world is so fucking small, really small. 
And the idea that Sam Francis on his deathbed had Anton Scalia's son ministering to him and possibly converting to Catholicism, whether you believe that or not, or whatever actually happened, I don't know. But it's just like, my God, this is a really fucking tiny world. And then that guy's at a dinner with you trying to convert you. Yeah. Which worked. Yeah. Well, yeah. Okay, so Sam Francis, Joe Sobron, and Pat Buchanan all started going on this monthly dinner date at this restaurant, the Hunan Line in McLean, Virginia. And this this all coalesced around the time of the Gulf War. They all opposed the Gulf War, which was a minority position on the right. And, you know, they predicted that it was going to be another Vietnam and so on and so forth. Pat Buchanan, the actual politician in the group once the war started you know supported the troops and realized that you know being a and the war was popular being a you know opposed to it was not was not politically smart so he he sort of broke with them on that but but it, it was based on this opposition to the gulf war the idea that the foreign policy apparatus in the in as the cold war wound down the foreign policy apparatus of the right had been seized by neoconservatives who had this globalist agenda and they preferred, you know, America to kind of turn inward after the cold war and not seek these kind of uh, foreign adventures that were, you know, to spread democracy. But that really wasn't what the Gulf war was about. It was pretty uh, nakedly realist project of uh, 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 you know, Bush's foreign policy team about oil and so on and so forth. But they projected this idea that it was about, you know, neoconservative wish to spread democracy and so on and so forth, which came true later. But so this was this was the, you know, the inception of their political collaboration. And they would meet and they, they you know, basically, I think, talked Buchanan into into trying to primary Bush or, or gave him, you know, the 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 idea to to mount this run it's a it's a strange group of malcontents um you know francis and and Soberman both lived alone they were sort of lived in their in their paranoid fantasy world for much of the time and brought this to to buchanan uh who who i think was you know open to it and, and sympathetic but but sort of expanded his imagination about the possibilities in American politics and uh, of where this stuff could go. So Buchanan does run. Yes, he decides uh, to run. He almost beats Bush in New Hampshire. Yeah. Uh, he, he doesn't, but it's one of those things where it's close enough where against an incumbent president, it kind of like shocks the world a bit, or at least that's how he portrayed it. It's almost like, it's almost like a Gene McCarthy, uh, LBJ LBJ, situation yeah. where, where he, you know, he, he mounts this, this credible run and just show that the coalition is fracturing and that that's kind of the the point i mean the the basic impetus joe soberman wrote a column uh, which was basically like look conservatives have to defeat bush because he's betrayed us so the first the first order of business is just to sink bush and then you know we can we can begin to take over the conservative movement again and and so on and so forth so yeah now, I would say, you know, one way to maybe um, connect your Baffler essay on 1992 and 
your TNR essay, the, the, the more recent one, would be to say, so Buchanan does in fact lose. Right. Uh, he, he, he's not obviously the Republican nominee in 1992, uh, but, his, but he loses in such a way that he's given this primetime spot yeah. at the Republican National Convention, yes. and he gives a very famous speech. And in Cultural fact, I would say, speech. yeah, um, David Frum, one of the actually pretty good books Frum's written is Dead Right. Um, and it, it begins with Buchanan's speech right. at the RNC. And so what did he say? And then maybe we could kind of like, so you have this eruption, David Duke, uh, Pat Buchanan, Sam Francis, Joe Sobrin, this, this, everything that's percolated in 1992. And maybe there's one version of conservative history that people like Ross Douthat, people like the Never Trumpers tell where this aberration happened. But, you know, it was kind of suppressed. Right. How do we get from 1992 to Trump? Uh, and, or yeah. if that's too broad of a question, it's like, what, how do you view that history in the sense of things that were alive and seemed very connected to Trump and Trumpism? You know, like a few years ago, you might have looked at 1992, you might read your Baffler essay and say, well, yeah, well, okay, that happened. Uh, but you know the Republican Party kind of got their act together. Yeah, they nomin- nominated George W. Bush right. in two thousand. So someone like Ross Douthat would say, "Oh, you know, this was a different kind of conservatism. He kind of wanted to push back against the racialized." Yes. You know, so like what happens? They exercise the, their demons. Yeah, like so. What kind of what happens in between, or how do you kind of connect your interest in nineteen ninety two to Trumpism and and you know your writings kind of that that cover. Yeah. those years and i want to say bef- before you even yeah. answer that um before we leave 1992 that there's other there's these other um uh resonances with uh the trump moment yeah. in 2015 2016 you also have um liberals looking at themselves and being like wait a second do we need to like solve this problem by like race baiting a little bit ourselves so you have barney yeah. frank writing um in the in the new york times uh, yeah. new york times in a, in a he- headline a, a, a column in the in the new york times headline race and crime let's talk sense yes where he says race and crime together show the not supposed to syndrome at its worst <laughs> liberals are not supposed to take note publicly of the fact that young black males commit crime in significantly higher proportion than any other major demographic group. And you have Thomas and Mary Edsel also writing a book called Chain Reaction, um, which, as you say, is cautioning Democrats that their, quote, censorious set of prohibitions against discussion of family structure among the black poor, absent fathers, crime, lack of labor force. So you have this other thing. You have this other thing happening, which also, like, is the reason that your column, that your that your essay is rightly called the year the clock stopped. Um, broke. The, the year the clock broke, um, which is that like you know liberals responding to the Trump phenomenon being being like, wait a second, do we need to be less you know woke and, and they basically and did the Mark Lilla move before he came up. Yes, with it, they did was, it back then too. Which was just like, yeah, well, you know, we have to, yeah. So basically, what happened was. You know, they realized that the what 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 there were there were certain like reactionary energies going on, and and that they had to had to respond to them. And and Clinton, in a lot of ways, which I did I wasn't able to get to in the piece, but I hope to in the future. Uh, I mean, Bill Clinton, who 
basically push pause in his campaign to go back and oversee the execution exactly. of Ricky Ray Rector. Yes, exactly. The African-American man who had been, uh, uh, through some injury, disabled. had been mentally disabled. He, yeah. yeah. Um, and it was basically like, you know, you're not going to tar me with the soft on race yeah. tag. Yeah. Yeah, and he triangul you know, was famous for triangulating, and I, I didn't really get into this in the piece, but I, I, I observed Sister re- Soldier re- it, that that was a you know that move was was designed not only to to distance himself from the, the you know the racial left of, of of the Democratic Party, but also just to publicly humiliate Jesse Jackson, which you know appealed to to a lot of people. So, um, yeah, so basically the Democrats tacked right on these issues in response to a lot of this stuff and you know the let's be fair the 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 strains and 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 things that were released at this time were not all just bottled up in the gop the 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 political forces were 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 reflected in in the democrats as well and the way they they responded to it and you know so yeah i mean a lot of uh, you know you know ross ross stout that uh wrote a piece that that sort of was like yeah the racial issues of the of the early 90s were sort of dealt with because we got tough on crime and and then we adopted a less racial conservatism but you know my response to that in in the piece that i, I recently wrote was that it's just like well it all came back so how do you explain that especially okay so the the conservative justification for for a certain freeze on of race baiting was just like well there was a lot of crime but but we live now in a, a outside of the uh, you know when, when the crime is declining but these racial politics return so that 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 argument that it was about it was about crime and and an overreaction to crime or something like that doesn't really hold for me because in the absence of it that imaginary persisted in the meantime a lot of these energies were you know, bounced in a lot of different places in American politics, including Democratic Party. And then, you know, you had, you know, I talked a little bit about uh, Ross Perot in, in this piece and, and you know, this kind of billionaire outsider, you know, populism was a thing. And, you know, Ross Perot and Pat Buchanan eventually sort of found themselves in their, you know, Ross Perot's reform party. So these, these energies, which were always kind of, you know, seen as being like, oh, this is super marginal. This is not a huge, important part of American politics were, were present and visible just kind of at the margins. And then it kind of returned with a fury because of the failure of George W. Bush's conservatism driven by neoconservatives and their, you know, the Iraq war and their, and their failure to manage, the financial crisis or they're they're bringing on the financial crisis in some ways. And so, yeah, that's sort of the transition from, from that to that. So, you know, my piece is very much about the, the internecine conflict between neoconservative and paleoconservatives. And then my, my more recent piece in the Republic is about the continuation of that struggle and the success of paleoconservatism in a way and vanquishing the neoconservatives who are now the core of the never Trump movement. One way maybe to get at it would be to say that I do think when you read these two essays together, the persistence of paleoconservatism is one of the really interesting features of it. And it does kind of make you wonder, like, you know, or it helps explain the kind of failure of neoconservatism is like, well, okay, they almost tried to ennoble conservatism in some way. Yeah. But 
as you point out in your more recent TNR essay, uh, New Republic essay, Finding Neverland, like the intellectuals, in fact, do not lead conservatism. You describe them as kind of barnacles on the side of a ship. uh, And and I think that's a really fascinating approach to it because it's true that the neoconservatives essentially don't represent a real constituency in American politics. Yeah. you know, that kind of highbrow conservatism is not one that really connects with the masses, if you can put it that way. And they always had to try to fake it through George W. Bush's folksiness or Sarah Palin, try to glom onto Sarah Palin or something like that. So, yeah, no, that's absolutely right. Uh, Okay, so Sam Francis, uh, to return to that for a moment, you know, his his brilliant observation about the American right uh, was just like, look, look, American right, intellectuals have always been obsessed with the power of ideas. I mean, this book by Richard Weaver, ideas Ideas have consequences. (laughs) And, you know, there's a, there's a real fixation on the American right with ideas and, 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 and Francis very smartly, but with conclusions obviously are are abhorrent said, look, no, you know, there are material forces at work here. There are the interests of different classes or subclasses or groups that, that are, are driving these politics. And, the conservative intellectuals are deluding themselves and that they have control over this. They're only kind of, you know, barely able to ride the tiger of this stuff. And eventually it's going to, uh, the, the winds are going to change in a certain way. So I think his analysis in, in many ways is correct. Like there was a, there's an energy, there's energies on the American right more broadly outside of the conservative movement or the GOP that, um, right-wing policy elites and, and intellectuals and journalists don't really have control over. They, they, they can try to focus, articulate them in different ways, but they are, but they are more, you know, subterranean. And that's sort of like where my writing has gone was that, you know, when I, when I started my writing project, I was like conservative intellectual, like, because I identified Murray Rothbard as an intellectual who identified the Trump movement and its energies before, you know, it had emerged was like, no, intellectuals are very important. They are the drivers of these things. And then gradually I've come to believe, no, there are other forces at work and intellectuals are just reflecting them. So yeah, I think that that basically what we've learned and paleoconservatives said this all along and they said it was only a matter of time was that the constituency for neoconservatism didn't really exist that they were sort of interlopers into this you know more organic movement and trump has sort of brought that to the fore that's true and not true i had this thought and it just seems so obvious to me that i'm so sorry that i didn't think of it earlier it's just that trump as this rainmaker for the right wing where he gives something to everybody no matter how odd or minor their constituency is like he the far the extreme right in american politics is you know marginal doesn't have that much power i mean they have more power than they they should have and we want them to have but like all of a sudden they felt energized by trump And, and then but in his presidency he's learned to sort of dole out favors everywhere. Neoconservatives are not that strongly opposed to him anymore because he, he, a tiny percentage of them, 
because he does things that appeal to their he's much more like Reagan than we realize because he does he unites the right he 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 knows how to to placate <laughs> to borrow a phrase yeah to borrow a phrase to placate these various forces on the American right and to make them all relatively happy i mean like look the the extreme right spencer people have bolted now from the the coalition but they're so meaningless at this point it doesn't even matter so you know it's just like he's cast all these people aside but the energies that they represent their importance has waned but the the energies they represent he's been very good at kind of you know ca- you know giving a little something to everybody um and his kind of mafioso figure no it's it's totally true i uh, i mean if you go back to the 90s uh, there was a speech that I think Bill Crystal gave yeah. to a conference that included like ex-gay um, reparative therapy types, you know, where he, I mean, Bill, it was Bill Crystal getting up and talking about how like abortion and sexuality were the bloody crossroads of American politics. And it's... And he, he has the, the temerity to lecture people about demagoguery. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. He didn't give a shit about that no. stuff. Or tell Democrats who they should nominate yeah. for the president. And it was, it was always clear that, like, whether it was the religious right or these the, the kind of middle American revolutionary types yeah. that, you know, that Sam Francis pointed to, you know, that was always the energy behind the right. And I, not to give myself too much credit, but the very first thing I wrote about Trump in August of 2015 after that first Fox debate, it was called Riding the Trump Tiger. Yeah. Yeah. And and my I I have to say I agree with you, John. That that a lot of the intellectual right is a kind of post hoc justification yeah, for awesome. things they already feel or sense or that are percolating out there. And so you have the like the tax revolts right of the sixties or seventies or whatever. And then and then you kind of have intellectuals talk about supply side economics right. and right and the tax revolts being rooted in like animosity towards the great society and the, yes and exactly. the spending of federal government yeah. dollars on programs yeah. for the non-white poor if i were to push back against your thesis in the new republic essay i would say something like it does seem like starting the 70s intellectuals put forward ideas about taxes and spending and welfare programs that did have an influence and impact oh yeah and 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 i guess my question is when you try to decipher the relationship between popular energies and the ideas of the intellectual right you know would you even say uh, because that would be the one area in which reagan did do something right like he didn't uh shutter the department of education no right all these hopes that the, the 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 murray rothbard repealing the 20th century all the things the right deep down the heart really wanted right reagan you know he cut taxes he deregulated things you get into the savings and loan crisis and you know so there were things the reagan administration did how do you when you think about what the right has accomplished because the right has accomplished things right like welfare was quote-unquote reformed taxes were slashed things were deregulated uh were those the product of ideas I think I think what I'm what I'm saying is and and, the, and is that the interpretation that right wing intellectuals and policy experts give to the energies on the right and what policies fit those energies is not always accurate. It's that they they are like, well, this is what people want. They want a a society with less taxes and more independence for 
you know, the, the, the small producer and so on and so forth. But they're projecting those views and they fit in limited time frames onto the interests of the people that are their constituencies. But then eventually, because all things don't sort of work out the way you things imagine them, or basically because they're also in the interest of capital, they begin to work against their very own constituencies. Yep. So th- that that the problem is that it's like some of that is misappreh- misapprehension of what they what their constituents actually want. And they're just like, oh, these people are angry. And we know why people are angry. Because government. (laughs) That's what makes everybody. Because our idea says that what makes people angry is the government. And then they're like, aren't you angry about the government? They're like, yeah, the government. It's bad. But there's different understandings of what that actually means. Well, yeah. You can always, I mean, there's, you can always attribute the things that Matt is describing as like the, sort of like effective influence of intellectual kind of propaganda on on like actual political change you can also attribute that to the same kind of dynamic like you can say i mean um that like yeah they convince that like libertarian that like libertarian donors like the Koch brothers spent an enormous amount of money like to create like an ideal an anti-government spending ideology um on some kind of like um libertarian principled grounds right. but but is that really why people are moved by it or is it that they're moved by it because it's always pr- pretty effective to say that the government is spending money on behalf of people the not other. like you right yeah. um and the government when you talk about the government obviously especially during the years when we had a black president right the government is this thing that is working for the other and not for you right and then of course like yeah i mean it's not a coincidence that the places in which like people legislators uh, the government has legislated on you know yeah. on behalf of the intellectuals are situations in which those policies like align very directly with the most the richest and most powerful people in the country yeah, too. yeah. <laughs> like, well so. like i think one john you can tell me what you think about this one of my sort of theories of the last few decades of conservative politics in the US is that like they've kept like you can make big promises and then you know so like Reagan comes to power and he does some of the things and you know he cuts taxes he deregulates but you know again he doesn't abolish social security he doesn't destroy the department of education and so on and that you keep going along and you kind of have to ratchet up right the the like I don't want to say absurdity of it, but you, you have to keep promising things, right? And and you eventually get to like George W. Bush, and he floats privatizing Social Security, right? Which is like the the right wing wet dream, right? Of getting rid of, of Social of Security, it, but that's what of, I'm of, of among of, a certain intellectual yeah. set of a faction, right? Yeah. And 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 it kind of breaks by the time you get to Trump, like right. you like you couldn't keep promising these things that didn't really reflect the material interests of the the actual Republican base. And so eventually it kind of cracks and you get Trump. But I I think one question I had was like, in light of that dynamic, like why did we have not have never Reagan, right? Or never George W. Bush. Like why? Well, you had never, you had never, oh, you had never, George H.W. Bush. That's right, exactly right, what we're talking right, about. Yeah. Right, so like the, the phenomenon of the never Trumpers, the people who resisted Trump, um, like how do you view them in the sweep of American history, uh, of conservative history 
uh, of the sort you've described in your essays? Like, well, they're sort of the, the. I mean, to be honest with you, they're sort of in the position that the people that they that have taken over were at one point, which is a sort of out of power minority that does not have a clear, uh, uh, clear path to power and is is the minor partner of a coalition at best and sort of an exile at worst, and you know. It could be like the, a lot of the people we're talking. I've I've talked about were viewed as rather absurd and disconnected, and then you know actually we're onto something now. Do, is there a second life out there for Never Trump conservatism? I don't know. It's hard to see, but you you have to say maybe because you have to say maybe they tap into a kind of resurgent Reaganism that comes out of you know, post Bernie Sanders, people getting fed up with taxes, so on and so forth. So I would say the reason why I, I have less belief that the that the never Trump sort of conservatism becomes a, a dominant strain again is just how materially out of touch it is yeah, yeah. at the moment. Yeah. But it might find a constituency that yeah. it, it has material well, Yeah. I would say I would take a different uh view on what the never trumpers the the still never trumpers represent because i i listen to like i read the bulwark i listen to sometimes our analysis is not bad so, well yeah. sometimes it's and not dispatches it's true yeah but 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 they have a you know they have i think they have a fundamental misapprehension of myopia at the core of their whole yes. approach yeah and i think that maybe one way of describing what it is is that they still believe in a set of myths about what the conservative movement consists yeah, of that that is that are untrue and so and so that and that is the point of your piece and yeah. that and that in particular like like bill buckley served as this you know the person who kept conservatism on the rails and um excommunicated those who stepped way too far out of the lines usually way too late like as we right. mentioned with sobrin but the point being that that there is a coherence to a conservative intellectual movement which has which has lines <laughs> which yeah. has places you yeah. can step too far well, out of and i think that that the thing that might unite some of these people is just the fact that they were credulous enough to believe <laughs> that shit really yeah. still mattered and that trump by by very much like as you mentioned earlier like stepping over the line in a bunch of different ways right. that he that he crossed this line that they believed really was there, yeah, really, yeah. that they believed that really did constitute what conservatism was, and that like they were like attached enough to that idea for like. But if they had been paying attention or honest with them, that, well, okay, no, so, right, no, yeah. it's a product of not knowing, like you say, it's yeah. a product of a, a Should willed we summarize ignorance. The whole argument of that piece, just to, for the listeners, yeah. So basically, in that piece. I this say is the TNR piece. The TNR piece. My argument is that, you know, the Never Trumpers are in a sort of hopeless situation because they're just not honest about what was actually going on in the conservative movement. They believed that there were guard, real guardrails. They believe, even though they sometimes would cross them themselves. Yeah. And they, or they would opportunistically say it's okay to cross them in certain circumstances. You know, they believe that this this thing couldn't go off the rails in, in, in a too crazy of a way. And, and, you know, but if you actually look at, at the history of the movement and the political 
compromises it made or not compromises the political movements it allied itself with is that it just it was just an utter myth it's just that that you know it was always aligning itself with with terrifying energies in american politics and 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 believed arrogantly that it could it could ride the tiger as he as he put it it could it could sort of manipulate control regulate and moderate this energy and that it would never get out of hand and that just turned out to not be true and and i and look i think you know your interview with with in his writing i'm i mean rostow that is a very bright guy and i think he's he's admirable among among conservatives in many ways but what i don't find convincing about him is one his argument that the conservative movement can sometimes get to, get this stuff under control again just like well why what's to why wouldn't it get out of hand a third time you know and in a much worse way it keeps coming back in more aggressive forms so and then the other part of of, of what i what i uh, you know his analysis and my analysis in this piece when i listened to your interview with him i was like oh yeah it's incredible that he said this is essentially the same it, he said okay w- one thing that I, I i i talk about in my tnr piece is just like there's a fundamental thing on the american right which is fixation on enemies and it's more about a threat an enemy that is to be struggled against is an existential threat. And this defines so much of their politics. And Altet basically in your interview with him was just like, yeah, that's the way it is. And I, we just have to pick better enemies that are not so, so toxic. I will point out it was slightly disturbing to me when he was like, Oh, it should be upper West side liberals. I know. Put the three, uh, parentheses yeah, yeah, around yeah. the I, like, uh, I know and people have pointed that out to me as the jew on the podcast like <laughs> afterwards and like there were a lot of moments in the interview where we matt and i sort of winced to each other and decided whether or not to, to challenge, to him, challenge him look or not. i don't think he's i don't think he oh, no it's not like but this is the thing we've talked about this about anti-semitism is that like it's so embedded in sort of like people's ideas of american politics they don't even ways, know it they don't even they don't even not aren't even doing that explicitly it's just that like it it my whole theory about anti-Semitism in American politics is that it's not the way anti-Semitism in Europe is, is yeah, like totally is mass politics and anti-Semitism in American life is inter- intra elite politics. It's just like, how do we push the Jews out be- of the country club? Yeah. Like, and it's just like, ah, there's too many Jews. They're, they're, they're coming into our, I mean, this was a part of anti-Semitism in Europe too, but it had a mass reflection. It's just like, Anti-Semitism in American life is is very much about intra-elite fighting, and like they're trying to bring back the the idea of the Jews as like orchestrating the entire kind of yeah. replacement of right, of, right, right. Of, of whites and I by think that non-whites. Ross is not, of course, what that's not what Ross is doing, but I don't but, think he's con- he's he's not consciously doing it. But like those are times where I was like, eh, yeah, maybe. but right, like you're saying that he that he's 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 acknowledging this as we've described in the podcast before the schmidian kind of duality but enemy just, friends and enemies and he's saying that um maybe we just need a different enemy that's not that's not like right, brown people but my people. whole point is like there is no way to moderate this ultimately they're always like oh you liberals see racism everywhere and we're just like no you don't see it when you're doing it 
other what people hear when you say that stuff and what you're activating when you say that stuff and you don't think it and you don't believe it is like you're fucking playing with energies that you can't control you're playing with the most you even think if this is the way you think about politics you even think this is the most fundamental deepest part of politics that that enemy like of of creating this contrast between friends and enemies like if you think it's so deep and powerful maybe be careful right yeah no, I think that's a good point. John, you know uh, George H. Nash's book, The Conservative yeah. Election Movement. Which America, is actually a much better book than it, than it appears on first glance. Yeah. yeah. However, uh, one of the things an actual honest-to-God conservative said to me about that book one time was that he said, you know, Matt, the problem is that it focuses too much on National Review. Yeah. yeah. Meaning the fusionism stuff. Yeah. yeah. And, and, the, the, and, and the implication of that comment was, what if actually the story of conservatism can't be told through the internecine debates happening in the pages of National Review? Yeah. And that was a moment that really something clicked for me. And this is why I'm so sympathetic to your TNR essay, which is to and because here's the thing, your TNR essay has a lot of explanatory value, which is, as you kind of put it in the piece, you know, we see these motley coalitions, right? Paleocons, neocons, like these people who have been allies in some sense on the right, yeah. however fraught their own interactions, like like the coalition doesn't really make sense unless it's against a certain common enemy. Right. And so this is why your line in that piece where the search for enemies is becoming ever more desperate, right. I think that has a lot of explanatory value. And But one of the things that really interests me, and I don't know if this will take us too far afield, but it's, you know, there was a moment in the aughts kind of, you know, when Bush won in 2000 and then he won again in 2004, uh, I think a lot of liberals, and you, I think this is reflected in the historiography of the American right, uh, you had like the Alan Brinkley essay in the American Historical Review called like The Problem of American Conservatism. And the the tone, if I'm remembering right, is something like, like maybe we've been missing something right. all along. And so I actually think a fair number of American liberals bought the right-wing mythology yes. that, as uh, George Will once put it, uh, like there was a spark when Buckley founded National Review. Yeah. And that kind of grew into a flame that like reached its full effervescence when Reagan was elected. Well, and and you kind of draw that, you kind of say like the New Deal happened and there was a small band of intellectuals who kind of fought back. Right. And had had these dissident views, and then eventually that all congealed into the American uh, modern American conservative movement. Right. And then you get Reagan's election, yeah. and then you go from there. And so there was a way in which I think when liberals were back on their heels during the kind of worst of the Bush years, they kind of a lot of liberals said people on the left said, well, maybe we're missing something here. And and in fact, when I took a seminar on American conservatism with Michael Kazin in the spring yeah. of two thousand five. You know, he said, like, I'm teaching this course in part to understand why we're losing. And and that's not a knock on Michael. It's just to say that, like, I think there was a sense in which the right's own mythologies have really guided how a lot of people in respectable mainstream yeah. Yeah, opinion-making like, writers, intellectuals, view the right. And I think partly what we're kind of living through now is, and why your work is so important, is people are kind of... <laughs> No, no, but people are saying like, well, actually, like Trump was this really amazing moment where it clarified yeah. 
or, or it had the potential to clarify like what actually had been going on for 50, 60 years. Yeah. Well, in, in so many ways. Like the proof is in the pudding now. Yeah. This is where it's all ended. Yeah, exactly. Which was my which was my whole argument against doubt that again, it's just like I was like, this is it, man. This is what it looks like. Like you're like, eh, it could get better again. Yeah, it could, but I mean it is gonna come back in some way. I mean, because like let's not forget, you know, for all the mythologizing of the right, as you point out in your writing. You know, uh, I mean, essentially, one counter narrative of National Review and Bill Buckley and so on is to say, oh, yeah, like you can view them as the noble uh, boundary policing right. Or you can say these were people who backed McCarthy, yes, who fought civil rights. Yeah. Bill Buckley went on TV and said he was going to punch a queer in the goddamn mouth. Yeah. And it's like, okay, well, which is actually the real, uh, the real right? Is it? fighting civil rights? Is it backing McCarthy? Is it threatening to punch homosexuals on TV? Is it, as Bill Buckley later put it, you know, everyone with AIDS should have a tattoo on their yeah, ass yeah. saying, De- oh. uh, you know, depart all hope you who enter here. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, you know, like, fuck that. Fuck you know, like, at, at every turn, there are these ugly moments that someone just get airbrushed out of so yes. much. And Buckley's pr- portrayed as the noble, good concern yeah, who, yeah. if he were alive now, he'd be, you know... But but you can go back to and and uh, he would have done exactly the same yeah thing and you that, can uh, read Bill Buckley's speeches like National Review yeah. honored Rush Limbaugh and you have Bill Buckley saying oh I love listening to Rush, well, Rush, Rush Limbaugh and like it's a like perfect example of what yeah. I'm talking about because Rush Limbaugh was actually in charge <laughs> yes yes that that's what no one understands uh, is that. Everyone was a fucking afraid of him. It's like they had to fucking they had to kiss his ring and apologize to him. If they criticized him, he would attack them, and they would. He was Trump before Trump in certain ways. And who's because, who's really doing the guardrails? If it, if you, if that's the situation, if that's the power dynamic. Fucking criticize people, and all the the great names of conservatism would throw themselves on the mercy of this fucking crude. Uh, demagogue and they would have to they lived in fear of this man and 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 now even now they won't even criticize him and he was so powerful and and so like the the arrogance of these people thinking that they dictate the the terms of debate uh, of political and then there's this idiot this 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 moron who they view with contempt but they are terrified of it's the same pattern and like how do they have respect for themselves it's just like you you think you're these 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 masters of discourse and debate and philosophical ideas but you you live and die by the word of a total idiot and it's just like this is the fucking pattern over and over again. And as you point out in your piece on 1992, for all Bill Buckley's, you know, in search of anti-Semitism, you know, his broadside against uh, Joe Sobrin and Pat Buchanan, uh, nevertheless, they backtracked and said, well, maybe you should vote for Pat Buchanan right, in the right, primary. Completely, completely indefensible right, by yeah, their own yeah. terms. And which, which mirrors in a deep way the never Trump Absolutely. Slash, well, maybe we'll be anti anti Trump's, uh, you know, however you want to phrase it. It's like this pattern emerges where you kind of maybe push against the the more vociferously nasty elements of the right, but then you kind of a little bit later take a few steps back and say, well, or even to take another example. Okay. So when the American conservative was founded in 2001. Right, it explicitly is a paleocon Oregon yeah. opposed to Iraq War. Wow. 
by, Bu- by Buchanan. Yeah, by, by Pat Buchanan, Buchanan and Scott McConnell and, and Taki, right? Yeah. Taki, that piece of shit, that racist piece of shit. He's an actual, actual real fascist. Right. And, and, and you kind of you know, follow the circuitous path to 2020 now. We're in 2019 this summer. Yeah. Uh, but the most recent National Conservatism Conference in Rome, yeah. which included Orban. Victor Orban and, and uh, the Italian. Italian. Yeah, right. Uh, and who was there? American conservative senior editor Rod Dreher. Yeah, of course. So it all it all comes back together. This, you know what I mean? Like yeah. it's it's when you see when you trace these lineages and see how it works, it's it's the same pattern repeating itself right now. Yeah. Of like initial opposition, then backtracking, and yes. yeah. uh, Sam, hop in here. Well, I want to say something. I think that we alluded to this, but I think that the credulity of liberals plays. A important role in this thing that we're describing—the mythologizing of a of a like intellectual, an intellectually justifiable and um, upstanding, high-minded right—because like you know, like there's a sigh of relief when 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 amongst liberals when Bill Buckley does the right thing about like pushing somebody out of the of the family, and now with the never Trumpers, Bill Bill Crystal. Like he's embraced by liberals. Max Boot is embraced I think less and less, but yeah. But 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 yeah. I mean, like, but maybe not by like liberals that we know, but like, but by the like some, yeah. But like, yeah, by, no, the, but by the establishment, about. by like the by the by the by the like, organs, oh. the organs of like liberalism, like the like like he's gonna get and as many columns as he wants the New York Times to say to tell liberals how they should respond to Trump and who they should who should they should put in power, um, like you know like. People are listening to like uh, Charlie Sykes about like with <laughs> liberals are listening to like these never Trumpers about yeah. like who. Did you read Suja's piece in the outline a day or two ago? Yeah, yeah. Suja Hader, where, where he just went through all the never Trump intellectuals and their like recommendations, and yeah. it's it was this it was really a beautiful little piece. I yeah. thought the point of this is not to be like yeah and fuck the liberals, but I'm just saying that like when we tell this story about why it is that a mythology of an acceptable kind of like alternative right to the like forces that are actually propelling the movement throughout American history, like the, 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 the desire on the part of like people who believe in some kind of like, like high minded intellectual discourse between left and right. And this like, and you know, neutral zones of like, you know, whatever is that they are, that they are, you know, that there's, there's a real complicity there. And it's amazing to me that it's happening again, that like, that like these people that like Jennifer Rubin and Max Boot, and these people who were, who were, who are not defensible in their politics. Yeah. They have not been. They were not. We just described what like Bill Crystal was saying. Yeah, and this is where yeah. I think it matters that the neocons laundered so much of the anti-welfare stuff, uh, social policy stuff, because they were like liberals in good standing, and 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 even when they oh, moved right. right, like sociologically, they were friends with liberals in good standing. Right. And so I actually, and that you know, is still intermingling cast. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. So I, you know, when 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 I was thinking about this conversation, that was one of the things that occurred to me was that, like, how neocons were respectable, and their role in you know for all our episodes, the paleocons, the role of neocons in laundering a lot of stuff because they were like, well, you know, they're part of the well, their plans got instantiated in the. Clinton administration in certain ways. And then when it came to foreign policy, you had, you know, like, you know, there was a moment in American history in like the the, the 80s and 90s where it's like you had the New Republic 
on like the the yeah. left flank of neoconservatives call it neoliberalism yeah. and uh, but you know and when you think about the the kind of trafficking between TNR and then right wing publications Charles Krauthammer yeah. Yeah. um uh, uh and and the uh, Fred Barnes yeah. who went on to uh, he was at TNR and then he went to the Weekly Standard. Yeah. You know, there was a reason why I think a certain foreign policy consensus congealed. Yeah. And and it's no accident that the neocons were talking about, the, and like at AEI, Charles Murray, you know, talk, losing ground, et cetera. And then you had the New Republic publishing Murray's stuff on race and IQ. On the front my, my page. Old, my old friend and my well, old boss, Andrew Sullivan, right? One of my points in my There was this moment of real consensus that was actually yeah. quite reactionary when you look back yeah, at yeah, it. No, but, but, but my point is, is that there was nothing that much different. Like, And this is like, this is my most crazy left-wing view, maybe, is just like, there's nothing different from what David Duke was saying and what fucking Charles Murray was saying in AEI. There wasn't. He was saying like, "Oh, maybe there's an IQ difference." Charles Murray had more yeah, charts and graphs, but right, exactly. It's justified uh, a priori by uh, Duke, and it's justified by <laughs> IQ by Murray. But that's but the reason not... why David Duke supporters were bitching so much, where they're like, "Well, you already say this stuff. Like, what's wrong with us?" Yeah. And they were like, "Well, you're a little too, <laughs> like, you're a little too too on the nose." Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, this we should wrap. Okay. So maybe one takeaway would be that it's not ideas that have consequences; it's impulses have consequences. <laughs> well, yeah, and material interests or instincts have. I don't know what, what how the world works, uh, John. How does the world work? We need we brought you on the, to tell the us the dialectic between ideas and the material world. Is if I knew that, I would not. But I I do think yeah. uh, it it would be healthy for everyone if we viewed the kind of what had become the mythological view of the intellectual yes. right with a bit of more skepticism than many do. Yes. And and maybe that's not a grand theory of how the world works, but it is a theory of recent American history. And I think you're right, especially in this TNR piece, to push back against uh, a romantic view of the place of ideas on the right. And and maybe Bill Buckley was right all along when he said we were going to stand athwart history yelling stop. Yeah. And that's all it's ever been. Yeah. No, it's yeah. been a no. Yeah. And how many people can you get behind that no? It turns out a hell of a lot. Yeah. And then I, as I as I've probably said on the podcast before, you know, um, what's his name, Ben uh, Shapiro, who says, "Oh, facts don't care about your feelings." No, 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 no. no. Fa- fa- facts do care. Facts do care about your feelings. In fact, like facts for a lot of people are just feelings. Yeah. <laughs> like, like the 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 affective dimension of like of ideas and facts yeah. and these sort of empirical things that are supposed to be like the determinants of elect- intellectual discourse are so incredibly important. And those affects are rooted in psychology, yeah. racial ideas, uh, material, material, material interests. I, I think I think a big theme of my writing or, or what I really want to get at is just the ima- imagination is, is an, uh, an extremely important component of what drives people politically and you know it has its own determinants but it's very it's very important to understand people's imaginations and what they fixate on what yeah. what, what what you know what what con- occupies their minds and i think that that is more important than you know of course it's important to pay attention to to the the substance of people's arguments but i think that there's a, a as you said an effective dimension or there's an uh, there's a whole imaginative realm that people call up when they're when they're thinking and that's what i really want to identify with my work 
And I think the Wright's imaginative world is super fascinating. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Wow, that might good be a good place to end. Yeah. Thank, thank you, John. Yeah. Thank you, guys. This. I hope this conversation was coherent in some way. But I had a really great time. It was great. Yeah. It was great. <laughs> it was really great. It was. Yeah. It was a real like kind of like distillate of the purest essence of what Noiremi is. Yeah. No. I feel like we talked yeah. about it a lot. We like. And we could have talked about more. We took a, we took a hot <laughs> spoon and we put Know Your Enemy in the top of it. Yeah, and just, 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 just <laughs> got it right down just to Just a shooting gallery. Yeah, and then we just shot it directly into our veins. I don't and know what you're talking you about. Two, oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh they're, they're both looking at me confused. <laughs> um, well, yeah, as I was saying, it's very important to look in the contents of people's imaginations. <laughs> <laughs> the metaphors they choose. <laughs> Yeah, I'll take it. I'll take it. Thanks, John. Yeah, thank you guys. Yeah.